We are continuing week three of our three-week series, that means it is the end, where we have been looking at our aspirations as a congregation, and in the first week we talked about our privileges and responsibilities to God on this vertical plane of worship, that we owe him our adoration and our action and response to his life at work in us. And so we worship him together, and then we move out into the world and worship as well. We talked about our privileges and responsibilities in nurture, where we are this community, a circulatory system of God's grace, where we are breathing in his spirit, and we are being formed and shaped into the image of his son. And then today, we are addressing this notion of our privileges and responsibilities, not just to God and not just to each other, but to the world. Archbishop William Temple said, the church is the only cooperative society on the earth that exists for the benefit of its non-members. It's the only cooperative society that exists for the benefit of its non-members. That may be overstating something, but it's a good way to begin to think. And it's certainly a way that we want to think of ourselves here, the outward face The aspect of our life where we say we have received much and now we are a commissioned people. It's built into the fabric of our worship service. At the very end of the service, you are given a benediction. The name of God is placed on you. A good word is showered over you. And then you're told to go in peace, to love, and to serve the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You are sent out as little Christ's to the world, to bear witness. Jesus, in Matthew 28, and in Luke 24, and in John 19, in various kinds of ways, talks about these people that he is engrafting into his world reclamation project, a world that is chewing itself up that he has propped himself up against the ruin of, and he says to his disciples, as he breathes his spirit on them, as the Father has sent me, I send you. He says in Luke, you will be my witnesses when the Spirit of God, the little personal Pentecost that will come to each one of you, when it comes on you, you will bear witness, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name. And then here, what we're looking at today in Matthew 28, you have Jesus talking to the 11 now, the 12th is gone, on the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, some worshiped and some doubted, which is an encouraging reminder that these people being sent out weren't altogether sure all the time. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Always with you to the very end of the age. Henry James has suggested in a quotation that I am presently not able to find, which is fun. Phones are cool. He has suggested that in one place, he says, I am, I'm sick of myself. I'm clever enough to want what I don't have. 
I'm fed up with me. I'm fed up with my own eternal company. And we've been told that the key to happiness is getting outside of yourself. And he says, well, that's, that's partially right. The key to happiness is not just getting outside of yourself. It's staying outside of yourself. And to do that, we need an absorbing errand. This is just the way you talk all the time. I have an absorbing errand today that's occupying my attentions, my affections, my thoughts, and my time. But he's saying in a way that you might resonate, do you ever get sick of yourself? I'm such a burden to myself. I can't stand myself. I don't want to be around myself anymore. You get sick of yourself. And he says, I know that feeling. I'm discontented. I'm disquieted. And I've been told that the, what I need to do is get outside of myself. Good, good advice. Stop thinking about yourself so much. Somehow get catapulted out of the labyrinth of yourself. Get emancipated from the gloomy little dungeon that you're stuck in. But the question is, how do I stay out of it? And if I'm going to do that, I have to have something to occupy me that is enormously more engaging, more satisfying, more moving, more captivating than anything I can come up with on my own. And as I said with worship, our calling is our cure. There's a curative aspect of what Jesus gives us here. When he calls us to bear witness to the fact of his resurrection, which means we are bearing witness, or we're saying to the world in our words and in our work and our ways and in our deeds that he is the benevolent king of all who is making all things sad come untrue. We are the ones who get to distribute that information. And in doing it, as scary as it can sometimes be, as demanding as it can sometimes be, it gives us an absorbing errand for our life as a community and our individual lives as well. So witnessing is an absorbing errand to catapult us out of the enclaves of self-preoccupation and trivial pursuit. You may not realize it, but a great number of us spend a great deal of time trying to make sure that we're as little bothered as possible. You know the great C.S. Lewis quote, most of us can think we're very loving when we are merely unbothered. No one thinks they're more loving than I am than when I weep at a TV commercial. That doesn't ever happen. But you find out when you actually get interrupted, don't you? And Jesus has given us an interrupting purpose. Bear witness. An absorbing errand. You get to represent me in everything you do. If you get a hold of it, it can be a really powerful thing to catapult you out of your preoccupation with yourself. And before you hear Jesus saying, I have all this authority and I want everybody to know about it, that they need to bow the knee, not to a flag or not to a flag, I don't care about that. They need to bow the knee to Christ. And so you need to teach them this. You need to teach them who's the benevolent ruler of the world where the solutions for their soul resides, who is going to heal the nations, who's going to forgive sins, who's going to defeat death. 
But before you hear him saying this, I want to ask you to think for a second about tears. Tears are not mentioned in this passage, but I've been thinking about them some. And I think about this idea that the last thing that Jesus says in these Gospels is this idea of sending his people out to make an announcement about the true nature of reality. Something has changed. Frame your life according to what's real, that Christ is really actually the king. He's actually the one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so you need to let people know about this. And I watched the same Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem. Underneath his commissioning to be my witness, and I watch him for people who have said, we don't want anything to do with you. Get away from me. You're a devil. You're a heretic. You're a son of Satan. You're worthy of crucifixion and not much else. And what does Jesus do? But he angrily tweets about them. He sends ballistic missiles against Jerusalem. He threatens them. Atomic elbows on their heads. He looks over the city and he weeps. Why? Is he an idiot? We all know that none of this religion stuff matters. None of it's real. Why would he cry over people who didn't want anything to do with him? Unless having something to do with him meant everything. Why would he weep and say, how long I have longed to scoop you up like a mother embraces her baby when he wakes up in the morning? How long I have wished to gather you under my wings like a mother hen with her chicks, but you were not willing. He wept for the rejection. He wept for the destruction that was going to come on to them because they had chosen the path of their own selves. They had rejected the generosity of God. When you hear the call to witness, it's helpful to think about the tears of Jesus and then the death of Jesus and then this commissioning of Jesus where he sends people out into situations where they're going to be beheaded and they're going to be flogged and they're going to be ridiculed and they're going to be imprisoned and they're going to lose their families and they're going to lose their possessions. And you think, if Jesus is real and if he really did send them out, why on earth did he do that? Why would he be so cruel to send them out to that stuff if none of it mattered? I don't know. And then you got doggone Apostle Paul, visitation from Jesus, who says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I could trade my own salvation for my own countrymen. I wish that they would embrace Christ and, and get in on the blessings of bowing the knee, the blessings of succumbing to the largesse of the Messiah. But they've rejected him. And I'm filled with unceasing anguish about that. And the story of Francis Schaeffer that I remembered from years ago in a 
reread it recently. When he was in the 50s, a student at Wheaton College, 20 years old, and is five feet tall on his little knickers. That is an unusual pair of clothing that most people in our times do not wear. Think about a long short. Not quite a pant, not quite a short. And this Francis Schaeffer, an upperclassman, said we listened to him for two weeks in chapel with his grating voice weep at his seat for the world. He said he taught us as he looked out into a world that had been held captive by hostile views of reality, hostile to God and actually therefore hostile to themselves. And instead of judging the world, he wept for it. It was a call not to some kind of culture war. It was a call to care. Particularly instructive for us right now when we think about what bearing witness is. That historically, people have thought about bearing witness as letting your guts be ripped out in love for the people around you. It's going to great cost and expense, disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. It's seeking and saving what was lost as the Messiah did, whose life was one big cold shower, one big life of humiliation. I say these things because... You, like me, may find this part about witness to be one of the hardest parts. As a church, I think we do worship pretty well. As a church, I think we do nurture extremely well. I'm really proud of you how well we one another. It's incredible. I mean, I can't believe it how incredible it is. And those are God's gifts to us. And one of the areas I think we need most challenge, most shots in the arm about, is this aspect of witness and certainly in some of the particular aspects of it. So we're going to keep talking about that. And I want you to have underneath this call to go out into the nations to say, Jesus is the king. Listen to him. Let his words form how you think about the world and yourself and your relation to it. All authority has been given to him, which means your life is ultimately answerable to him. Not to your mama, not to your grandpa, not to a political party. It'll be answerable to him. And all the New Testament writers thought that really mattered. And all the Jews thought that really mattered. There was coming a day of the Lord where there would need to be a way to stand before God. And Jesus wants you to be able to do that. When the apostles speak in Acts about witness, they are witnessing to a fact that has something to do with everything. They're witnessing to a fact. As Matt said this morning, when someone says, What's your, how do you know the Bible's true? And you can say, well, how do you know anything you think is true is true? But, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ is how we know the Bible's true. That's where it starts. The resurrection of Jesus. If we don't have that, we don't have Christianity. We should all go home and go play golf. But this idea of witness, they say, we saw him, and we heard him, and we realized that when he was resurrected from the dead, it was the vindication of God, and he is God's man, and he must be listened to, and he is the one who can blanket in all the rebellions of the world, and like a launderer can scrub everyone clean, and he can welcome us into that better world and give us the hope of life in the world to come, where all things will be made new, and death itself will die. 
And so I want to think with you for these few next last few minutes about how it is that witness has something to do with everything for us as we leave these doors, whether barn doors or actual ones, this afternoon. And I'd like you to think about just your ordinary vocational life, how witness impacts everything about your ordinary vocational life. You know, one of the things that the gospel writers and the New Testament writers would say is that the normal sort of ethical components of your life, which is to say how you treat people, how you do your work, how you care for your family, how you care for your roommate, the way you demonstrate love, says an awful lot about the reality of Jesus. In fact, Leslie Newbigin has said and reminded us that the only way that anybody in the world is ever going to come to understand that the man who has the final say in all human affairs was the one who was hanging on the cross is if there are communities of people who believe it and live it. The congregation, he says, is the hermeneutic, the interpreter of the gospel. The reality of Christ as ruler, the reality of Christ in us, the reality of the availability of the heavens, the spirit of God in our lives, in our normal everyday lives is available to us. We can actually love people. We can actually forgive people. We can actually be generous. We are God's pilot project. Citizens of heaven in this little culture of death. Giving reality to the fact that Jesus is alive and he lives in us. And so you think about this. I remember a story that a guy told me when he got his first car. He bought it from some car dealer. Car dealers are known for their reputations of integrity and taking a loss for the benefit of the people they sell things to. He bought this car. It turns out that the odometer had been rolled back on it and other interesting tricks to make it look better than it was long enough to get it off the lot. And as they discovered this, he and his father had to try to take this back and it became an ordeal. And it so happened that the guy that sold him the car advertised that he was a Christian. He had an ichthus fish or something. In some way, he was making sure that the public knew this is a Christian establishment. This is a Christian car dealer. And the young boy said, and my dad told me, son, anytime anybody advances their Christianity at their business, you better watch out. You're most likely to be taken in. That might be cynical. Sadly, a lot of times true. And it should not be the case. One of the ways that you bear witness to the reality is you say, I am answerable to God in the way I conduct my business affairs, the way I charge people, the way I treat my employees, the way I treat my children. And I've been shown much mercy from him, so I'll show much mercy. He has disadvantaged himself to advantage me, so now that spirit lives with us, and we will disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of the community. That's what the Bible says righteousness is. And when it happens, 
when you have people who are showing themselves to love people that they shouldn't necessarily love. You got, a few years ago, our friend Elizabeth Painter, who's now been healed. She languished in a bed in a hospital. She has no family. Her body was in terrible pain. that Nothing worked on it. And she had scores and scores of people for long periods of time who would bring food to her, help her with her medication, who would visit her at the hospital and visit her at the hospital and visit her at the hospital where it seemed like she had gone to dwell forever. And they helped her get Medicaid. They helped her be able to pay. We, we as a church, bought her a house many years ago, a trailer. And at the end of the time in her hospital stay when she was leaving, the nurses said, What church is that? We have never seen anybody have so many visitors from somebody that wasn't their family. They were stunned that there was a revolving door of people who were regularly bothering to care for this woman who could pay them back in no way. And they bore witness to the king who cares about decrepit things and broken things and busted up things and things that are not so that he might call them as though they were. Your ordinary life is a chance to bear witness. That's why Paul says to masters and slaves and to young women and older women and to young men and older men that they should act in ways that make this teaching about our Savior attractive. We have a lot to do with that. There's also the issue of our, just what we're doing each day. When you go out to work, what motivates you? If you're merely thinking of your job as a place and way to make money, then you will likely not be all that motivated if you don't make very much money. Or if you're looking for just esteem, you won't be that motivated if you don't get much esteem. The younger you are, the less money and esteem you're going to get for anything you're doing. Congratulations. But maybe there's another way, an absorbing errand for thinking about your work that's better than esteem and money. This says, Jesus Christ cares about the world, its animals and its people, the the rich and the poor, the old and the young, people of every nation. And he demonstrates that care through the doctrine of providence. He cares about everything all the time. But he delegates that care to all of you in your individual work. That's why I have a house, even though I can barely tie my shoes. Because I didn't have to build it. The Lord provided housing for us through people who knew how to build a house. And the Lord provides food for you through people who know how to grow it. So Martin Luther could say, the Lord doesn't need your good works. We don't try to impress God with our good works. We've got his impressedness. But our neighbors need them. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, the bakers have been up since five, baking. Because God delegates his care through the work that you do, and you bear witness to how you think about that. As a mother, as a teacher, as a banker, as a nurse, you're bearing witness. You're representing the reality of Jesus Christ and the people you're around. So in your ordinary life, your vocational life, your disciple-making Locally and abroad. You'll notice each week at our church, during the prayer of thanksgiving for the offering, we're trying to pray for some of our partners around the world. Because this 
is part of the commission of the church. That something has happened in the universe and the whole world needs to know about it. Jesus says explicitly, go and make disciples of all the nations. And graft them into my community by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teach them to orient their lives around my words and not their own wants. Which is another way of saying teach them to obey everything I've commanded. So we're actively doing that. And there will be some of you called to do that. To help make disciples in other parts of the world. And then all of us have opportunities to help make disciples here. Locally. In your life. You realize, don't you, that everybody is being discipled. Everybody is being apprenticed, as Dallas Willard would say. All of us are being told by someone how to live. So don't let the word disciple scare you. Everybody in here is looking to certain voices to say, this is what life is like. This is what's important. This is how you do your work. This is how you handle money. This is how you handle your body. Every single person in here has somebody, has some guru in their mind who's telling them those things. And we are the people who get a chance to share it. But Jesus is the one who can tell us how to live. Because he's the one true human who has been human the way you're supposed to be. And he's making us into that. Now, this is a scary thing for most of us, I think. And it's an interesting thing to me to note that in the New Testament, I've wondered this before, and I hear Newbigin say it as well. He says, You'll search in vain for any place in the New Testament where the apostle presses on the conscience of believers to individually share the gospel with people. Doesn't that sound funny to your ears? Are there places in the Bible where it explicitly in the New Testament tells individual believers to share the gospel with their neighbors? It's an interesting question. I can't think of one. I think of Paul saying, I want you to be active in sharing your faith. So you may be aware of everything good you have in Christ. We were meeting with teachers recently, and Taylor's AP Spanish teacher said, you know, I've noticed that these students who talk, they actually learn the language and remember everything. The ones who don't ever speak it, they lose their vocabulary. Over the summer, if they don't ever practice, they don't ever try it, they lose what they've got. They don't understand. All of you know if you start to teach something that you know, if you try to help someone understand what you care about, then you start to care about it even more. It makes it more alive. So Paul tells people to do that. But Newbingen says, well, you can make the argument that we should individually do it, but the problem with those approaches is that it makes mission a burden and not a joy. And one of the things you see in the New Testament is this idea that something spectacular has happened, and it's happened to these individuals. And so Paul can say, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Like, I can't shut up about this. And Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, when they're told to keep their traps shut about this Jesus character, they say, we can't help it. We can't stop yammering about what we've seen and what we've heard. This changes everything. 
We can't stop talking about it. And so I would urge you, if you find it very difficult to talk about Jesus to anybody, I would say, find out how Jesus could become more precious to you. Because if you have any sense that Jesus matters in your life, has he helped you in some way? Has he given you an absorbing errand to do your life? Has he gotten you through anything? Has he, have you experienced his forgiveness? Have you gotten some courage from him in some way? Well, you've got something to share. You're a witness. You don't have to be able to answer all the questions. You're not a professor. You're a witness. You say, this is what I've seen and heard. This is what I've come to know. Stanley Hauerwas said at Duke Divinity School, in my lectures about, so stunning to me to listen to him talk, because when I read his books, I don't hear that voice. In my lectures on Christian ethics, I sometimes will ask my class, and this is in a divinity school, how many of them have ever invited another person to become a Christian? These are preparing ministers. And usually about three of them will raise their hands. I don't mean invite them to go to church, but invited them to follow Jesus Christ. And that's sad. So he said, that's sad. Well, it's hard for us. And we're especially in a moment where the only kind of evangelism that can happen is all the other kinds except for Christian ones. So you're being evangelized. Everybody you know evangelizes. If you say, Hey, well, you, you need to become a Christian. They'll say, why are you being so narrow? And you can say, well, why are you being so narrow? Because that's what you're being. If you assume that Christianity is false and whatever you think about everything, Christians should, I mean, uh, religion should be private. Well, that's your own narrow opinion. And the reason I mentioned a bit about tears is I keep being struck from time to time with this thought. Like, what if people, like, used to, like, a long time ago, people died. Do you know this? Like, people were living, and then at some point, they would die. But that doesn't happen anymore, fortunately. I hear, like, three people giggling. (laughs) But, see, used to, people thought you died at some point. And then, um, and, and some people realize that that still happens to people. Like, that nearly everyone in here probably will at some point. Maybe. And Christianity isn't just for when you die, but Christianity would say this life is really quite short. And some of us have have had dear friends just this week who reminded us of that. Their life was taken like that, and they were way too young for it. And Christianity wants to say, we have a way for you to live forever. So you ought to think about this. We have a way that if, what if God is keeping score? Like, we're going to find out. Those people in Charlottesville will find out. What does God think about marching and saying, we don't want no Jews to take our spot? What does God think about hating black people? What does God think about white nationalism? What does he think about it? They're going to find out if they don't repent, and they're not going to like it. What does God think about violating other people? Find out. And so Jesus says, remember the Jesus who wept over those who were choosing their own destruction. He said, go out and tell everybody there's a way to live forever. 
There's a way to live in accordance with reality. There's a way to not be at odds with God, but to be on his side and to know that he likes you. And to walk out in the world knowing that you have the resources of heaven residing in you, making you able to love and to forgive, to know joy and peace and patience. And you didn't have to make it up. Oh, and you get to live forever. I was instructed just this week of a young girl in our congregation, young woman. And I was so thankful who was weeping, weeping. Because somebody in her family said, I don't want to hear about this Christianity junk. And she was weeping and it instructed me. Why am I not? We bear witness in our ordinary life, our vocational life, and our disciple-making locally and abroad and in our deeds of mercy and in justice. In Jaber Crow, Athi Keith is this old man who pays a lot of attention to little children and to wounded dogs and such, and he is described this way. This tenderness was new. It was the tenderness of an old man who'd been busy his whole life, but now had time to pay attention to useless things. Useless things. It's a beautiful description. People bearing witness to Christ start paying attention to useless things. People who can't pay you back. You start having friends that aren't just like you and don't just share all your same values. That's one of the great things about a church is it actually connects you into all kinds of people that you wouldn't have chosen. But Jesus chose them. And so we have this opportunity to, to be literally witnesses to the fact that Christ has been generous to us so we can be generous to others. He's shown mercy to us. We show mercy to others. Even if they don't seem to deserve it. Even in our congregation, there's chances to work at this food pantry here, to work in prison ministry. Tons of men who are eager for the care of another who will come out into the world and they'll need support. They'll need a family. They'll need connections like you have. And they don't have any of. And we bear witness to the reality of the resurrection that affects everything when we give ourselves to that. Now, to do this, this is a closing thing. To do any of this kind of witness in our work, our vocation, disciple-making with friends, and mercy work, I think two things have to happen. One is we have to find some joy in belonging to God. Ask Him, why am I not glad about this? You're misunderstanding something if it's not making you glad. If you don't have moments, you're like, wait a second. You mean to tell me as awful as I am that God is not looking at me, about to spit on me? He actually, for some reason, likes me? Holy cow. I don't have to prove myself to anybody. I don't have to prove myself to him. I don't have to walk around guilty. Are you kidding me? If you don't have moments like that, you, you haven't understood. So work at it until you understand. It's, it won't, here's when you know you've understood it. It will seem too unbelievable. You'll know exactly you're on the path if what you believe seems unbelievable. Then you'll know. I'm, I'm getting close. And then you've got to figure out some way to deal with your fear. I think the main thing that keeps me from talking about Jesus to people 
is that I am scared of them. I apparently have a massive, deep, abiding commitment when I walk out of my house in the morning to no matter what, not be embarrassed. I don't care what happens today. I just want to make sure that in no way, at any time, under any circumstances, will I be embarrassed. I don't want anybody to think I'm weird. I don't want anybody to think I'm dumb. I don't want anybody to think I'm a fundamentalist. I don't want anybody to think I'm a wackadoo that's going to hit them over the head with the Bible. I don't want anybody to think any of that. I want them to think I'm as cool as I am. No, I already know that's not going to happen. But I'm afraid. I'm afraid. So if you're afraid, you just obey it, right? You just, like if you're afraid of stuff, you just, just listen to that, right? No, silly. No. That's what courage is. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's moving in the presence of it. And it's so exciting to me and so encouraging to realize that over and over and over again in the New Testament, being called to be witnesses, all these people, even like the Apostle Paul, who's very much configured way differently than I am, would say, will you pray for me so when I open my mouth, words will be given me so I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I will declare it fearlessly as I should. The early church says, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak boldly. Why do you ask for fearlessness and boldness unless you're worried about being fearful and cowardly? When I called, you made me bold and stout-hearted, says the psalmist. You know why? Because beforehand, he was feeling cowardly and flimsy-hearted. That encourages me. So I can ask God, make me bold but I don't need to understand what's going to happen. I tell you this. If you ask for boldness, you ask for courage, here's not what's going to happen. Here's what's not going to happen. Not what's, yeah. God is not going to give you some, like, nutrient-dense kale boldness smoothie where you drink it, and you're like, oh! And it's like you feel, like these guys apparently feel before a football game, you're like hitting your head on stuff and running through walls. Like, that's not going to happen for most of you. There's three of you it'll happen for, but that's probably not that's your other medication. It's a bad. <laughs> but what's going to happen is you're going to be able to do it. But you still might feel a little scared. You know, I'm a paid professional religious person, paid to be nice and all that. And I pray for people. You've seen me talk about this before. It's the hardest thing on the earth for me to say, would you mind if I pray for you? Even though no one has yet hit me in the nose when I ask that. But I feel like an idiot every single time and almost without exception say, can I pray for you? I'm a pastor. People expect me to do that. But it still doesn't feel less weird. But mostly I just go ahead and do it anyway. My friend Joe Nonson says, uh, when you walk through the door marked fear, you get to meet Jesus on the other side. So there's some of you, there's about, there's, there's one in 100,000 people in here who have been given the, the gift of evangelism and they have this uncanny boldness. Like they really honestly don't fear anything. And you know it because if you're friends with them, it's miserable. <laughs> They're awful people to be around. You go to a restaurant, you go through the line, the lady gives you your change. She's like, here's your change, sir. And you're like, oh, change. Hey, that reminds me. About a change in my life. You've, you've cut 
a friend whose family member was an evangelist. He, he had cut his neck shaving. His older man, his like, collar was filling up with blood. And like, Sir, you've got all this blood on your collar. You're bleeding. And he's, oh, reminds me of the blood of Jesus. It's like, okay, but no. So there are some guys like that. And if you know some of them, you should be around them because it'll, God doesn't make too many of them because he doesn't want the world to be miserable. But he makes some of them so that the cowards among us will get emboldened. Because that's what those guys do to me. I'm like, yeah, come on, it can be done. I can open my mouth and people might inherit eternal life because of it. I can welcome people into the heart of things. I can tell people the thing that's the most important thing in my life without which I cannot live, I can actually tell that to somebody else and they might get to feel the same way if I'm just willing not to be afraid or willing to move forward in the face of my fears. Brene Brown says, you can have comfort or you can have courage, but you cannot have both of them at the same time. You can have courage Or you can have comfort. But you cannot have both of them at the same time. She says, if I don't feel a little nauseous after I give a speech, I probably didn't show up. I'm glad she said that. I'll feel nauseous after this talk. (laughs) But it's true. If we're only protecting our own comfort, we can't bear witness to Jesus. But if we're willing to risk it and courage we might get this profound joy on the other side of our fear at getting to see him come alive through our words, through our work, through our ways, through our deeds, and even through our scary and bad evangelism. I hope you'll give yourself to this absorbing errand of witness. Amen.